Welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast, presented by Orion Advisor Solutions and hosted by Dr. Daniel Crosby, Orion's Chief Behavioral Officer and New York Times bestselling author. Each week, Dr. Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest on a range of compelling topics, from literature to psychology to financial wellness. To learn more about Dr. Crosby's behavioral finance work at Orion, visit www.orion.com. Hello, and welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby, and I am joined today to make things as confusing as possible by another Daniel, Daniel R. Staker. He has 15 years in sales and marketing, over a decade of experience at the executive level in organizations of all size. He is a former attorney, and he is a big behavioral psychology enthusiast and studies how to apply those things to the world of marketing. Uh, he has just written a new book called To Market, How to Give a Damn and Take Things to the Next Level. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I've, I've never felt more official in my life. Wow. Well, we won't tell them about the Vampire Weekend and the Clash posters behind you. That would make you feel unofficial. Both great bands, though, so hard hard to be mad about that. Yeah, this is our uh, music room in, that I'm in right now, so uh, it's it's hard to uh, take myself too seriously in here. Very good. So uh, one thing that I love about this is you call this, we've, we've known each other for years, we've had lots of good conversations about the business and, and psychology, but you call this a book from a breakdown. Uh, and I really, I really like that, that phrasing. You know, when when I sent you the Zoom link today, you said it had been 200 and something days since you had logged into a Zoom meeting, uh, which made me very, very jealous. Tell us about the breakdown and how it led to this book. Absolutely. So uh, I love what I do, and I've, I've been so lucky to uh, be able to uh, do it at very high levels, uh, you know, publicly traded companies, large organizations. Um I love people. I think people are the most fascinating things in the world. Um, and I've always viewed uh, my work in sales and marketing as uh, uh, really kind of a concierge role of like people exist, people have problems and good sales and marketing will help them with problems and, and connect them. And I found a lot of meaning in that. Um, so you have this quest to understand people in the objective of a goal. And that's what I love. That's not always what you get to do at work. And uh, the uh, the jobs I've had have come with uh, great, you know, things that are great and things that aren't so great. Uh, I, I found one of the things that I didn't love uh, was sort of just a, a constant pressure to uh, do things that I didn't think were advisable. And I, I'm not talking about anything unethical or whatever, just uh, marketing sales strategies. Uh, you'll have a marketing role and a CEO will come and say, hey, uh, we should do this. And you say, oh, that's a phenomenally bad idea. And then they'll say, well, we're doing it. And by the way, you're 100% accountable for doing it. Uh, so it was it was a tough world. And uh, eventually I was just surviving off antacids and like cuss words. Uh, I started having uh, panic attacks. There's one day where uh, it was a weekend and me and my wife thought I was having a heart attack. And she had gotten the phone and had uh, was about to dial 911. Like her her hand is like on the button and i thought this is so weird i haven't felt anything like this since and then i remembered college i was like oh don't don't call the police don't call, or don't don't call 911 don't call 911 it's a panic attack and uh but those started coming back in my life um and eventually like the the toll on my health was unworkable so i i went into my boss and uh he was very supportive i said i, I can't continue to do this and they said could you get us through the end of the year and i said absolutely i can get you through the end of the year and so we made a a transition plan. They were wildly supportive. Um, and, uh, on December 30th, uh, 2022, I, I worked my last day as a W2 employee and have been doing a uh, boutique consulting gigs ever since. You know, thanks for, thanks for your willingness to talk about that. You know, we just, uh, the, the episode, this will drop some weeks after this, but you know, the episode that, that just dropped this week with Jay Coulter, he was talking about a very similar thing about you know, how his own mental health journey, how his friend, uh, his friend's suicide was, was really what it took to sort of catalyze 
this transition into doing work that was meaningful for him and, and important for him, sometimes it feels like it really does take, you know, hitting rock bottom to, to sort of hit that cliche to sort of snap us back to reality to to help us know what we how we should be spending our time. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it's funny. I, I had an employee come to me once and say they were very unhappy. And I said, hey, we'll do some things that work to try and make you happy. But the headline here is you have to change your life. Like uh, there's no dress rehearsal for life. This this is it. Like this is your brief time on the stage. Um, and so I, uh, it took me a long time to follow my own advice. When I finally did, um, you know, I, I woke up one morning and for the first time in, uh, you know, 15 years, I didn't have a job. Mm-hmm. And so I opened the laptop and I just started like frantically writing all the things that I had learned over like this, these 15 years of like, uh, trauma and joy and success and failure. And, you know, and things I couldn't get people to listen to, uh, things that, uh, I knew to be true, but that people didn't always value the way I thought they should be valued. And, and when it was done, I had like a four page list of bullet points. And then I noticed, Hey, a lot of these themes, uh, or a lot of these group around a theme. And, uh, one, one big theme was, um, you know, people get marketing and sales wrong because they don't have the proper foundation. And so much of that proper foundation is just understanding people, understanding how they work and operate. And you absolutely need that before. And then the second part, uh, of the book is, uh, when you get into execution, you can, you can have all the proper understanding you need, but then if you execute poorly, uh, it doesn't go well. So if you have foundation and execution, my belief is, uh, you know, you can, you can market. So, you know, I talk about, uh, in my book, in my book, the behavioral investor, I talk about how people are sort of the fundamental units of capital markets. And I talk about, you know, advances in, in physics and science and, Basically, we only once we understood atomic structure that we could kind of like take take things and make big big advances in science. And you know, I think the same thing is true of of finance and and as we'll talk about today, marketing. Uh, can you talk about how marketing sort of combines the uh, you know behavior as this fundamental unit of marketing and and how that foundational piece exists? Yes, absolutely. Uh, this this is what launched me into this industry. Uh, when I when I first started getting a glimpse into this world, I noticed that uh, so much of marketing was process oriented. So much of sales was process oriented. Uh, salespeople will make a call with an invite. They'll do a thing. They'll you know, hey, come come to this meeting, and I'll tell you about investment strategies, whatever. Um, and and those are all great things to do, but sometimes we see them as processes. So I do this invite to get them to this thing. If they come, I move them into this group and then they get this email. And if they don't respond to this email, they get this other email and the, the processes, the processes can be great, but, uh, they have to be supported by the people. If you, if you don't really think about the people first, you put the cart before the horse. So, uh, one of the things, uh, I noticed when I got into this world, I'd say, well, like, tell me about our customer and people would be like, Oh, our customers, you know, are just hungry to find the software that will help them do this. And I'd be like, I've never heard anyone talk that way in my life. Or I, I, uh, worked for a, a corporate training company and I'd be like, say, uh, what, what keeps our customers up at night? And they'd say, oh, silos. <laughs> and I, thought, I have never known anyone who like, oh, I couldn't sleep last night. Why couldn't you sleep? I was just up so late worrying about silos in my organization, that could be an element of what they're up worried about. So what I found was, um, you have to really get to know the customer. Uh, you have to understand that people need to make about 35,000 decisions in a day, but most of these decisions are going to be made on gut instinct, uh, that like our, our conscious mind doesn't even enter into it a ton of the time. Um, so we started doing things, uh, you know, marketing approaches where we thought, okay, that person doesn't stay up late worrying about silos. That person stays up late, um, you know, worrying about how the heck they're going to get dentists who they can't stand to like report what they need to another department. And that's a very human worry or, or in the, you know, the language for more of your listeners, uh, 
I don't know that a lot of your customers are up late at night, like worrying about their, you know, the percentage contribution from their check. They might be like getting a looming sense of dread that their kids are about to go to college. Uh, they might be getting a looming sense of dread that like they're 65 working in some like blue collar job they can't stand and they don't know how much longer their body is going to hold out. Um, if you can understand the the client on this level, like really get in their skin and see the world through their eyes, it will completely affect the way you set up all those uh, processes, uh, marketing processes later on, you know, the invites and the emails and things. It could be the difference of like, hey, uh, come to this, you know, retirement uh, summit to learn how, you know, to invest wisely or whatever versus like, uh, do you feel the impending dread of your kids becoming college age, you know, but that is a much better lead in it because yes, I do. Like, do you, are you curious how on earth you're going to get your kids to college? Are you curious how on earth uh, you're going to retire? Um, gosh, I, I had this guy that I loved. His name was uh, Sheffield Villiers, which is like the ultimate rich guy name. And uh, he had invested very well. He was a very wealthy guy. And I was like a young 20 year old and I, I uh, was with him and I was with a friend and the friend was like, so how do I do this? How do I do this? How do I do this? And Sheffield was like, do you have an hour? And the kid was like, yeah. So he took me and this kid to go visit two elderly people in the neighborhood. One person we showed up uh, to a Medicaid uh, group home. And it's just as bleak as you think. You walk in, it's summer, it's about 90 degrees inside, it smells. Uh, you know, bodily fluids that aren't cleaned up enough, like gross carpet, uh, Fox News blaring at, you know, like 110 decibels as everyone just kind of sits in this dark, uh, musty living room, like rocking back and forth. So we visit a person, we say hi, you know, we talk to them, we catch up, ask them how their kids are doing. And then he drives us to uh, visit another older person he knows. And that person, I kid you not, had just pulled in the driveway and is like washing off a giant RV. And he's like, Hey Larry, where you been? He's like, Oh, me and the wife, you know, we're just driving across the country, yada, yada, yada. And then he turns to my friend who had been asking about investment advice. And he's like, that's the difference between doing what I told you and not doing what I told you. Hmm. And it, you know, such a powerful thing, but to, to make the unseen seeable. You know, I, I told you early on, we, we make about 35,000 decisions in a day. Um, we're not really spending a ton of time on most of them. Um, if you can reveal the unseen and make it seeable, that lesson stuck with me forever. And that's, you know, that's why I, uh, you know, wear old clothes and try to hold cars and whatever, uh, because I'm, I'm always putting, you know, he called it the coal pile, but I'm always adding to the coal pile. I'm never taking from the coal pile because, you know, winter comes and you're going to need that coal to stay, you know, warm through the winter. Um, but I, I think that's just an illustration of the massive difference it makes, uh, to understand the people before you launch into the process. And when you understand the people, you'll be able to, uh, show them how this all matters on their terms. So I, I think this is fantastic. I was, I was listening to a podcast I, I really like called Choice Hacking, uh, Jen Kleinhens, former guest of the show. But I was, I was listening to her podcast yesterday and it was the psychology of the downfall of JCPenney. And, and basically what it, what it was, was they brought in this really like high polish executive from Apple. I forget his name, but they, they bring in this executive from Apple and he sort of imposes this Apple, like Silicon Valley, high tech, high gloss worldview on JCPenney customers who really just like big sales and kind of like, and kind of like digging through the crates for stuff. And so I think in, in finance and marketing, we're often answering the wrong question, right? Like, like you said, I've, I, I forget who to credit for this, but I've, I've heard it said that financial advisors clients effectively every question of theirs is some permutation of am i going to be okay and like we're writing white papers about you know whatever indonesian reits are doing or like what is our fixed income projection for the next decade and like they're just like am i going to be okay but i know that you know that we we also have difficulties people are poor reporters of their own behavior and their own motivations so the question my question to you is then 
how do we figure out what the clients want when they're often very bad at articulating it themselves? <laughs> yeah, a hundred percent. You're so wise. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a great example. Yeah, I love your example about Apple and JCPenney. I'll give you a great example of what you're talking about. Uh, I I learned this uh, in a confidential meeting, so I'll just say like a Fortune 100 retailer uh, got a job at another Fortune 100 retailer. And they surveyed customers and those customers said, oh, we don't like the clutter in the aisles. So they do some test stores and they make the aisles wider and they stop putting pallets down in the middle and they remove the clutter and sales plummet. Because it turns out people of that particular store love going through a bit. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and yet they asked the customer, what do you want? And the customer said, oh, we want a clean aisle. And they're like, here's clean aisles. And they're like, oh, we're not, <laughs> we're not into it. Yeah. Uh, so we, we don't know what we want. And, and this is the thing I talk about in the book. Uh, when incorporating feedback, people desperately want to be right. They want to give the right answer. Clean aisles is the right answer, right? No one's like, oh, I, I want to dirty your aisle. So the, the first place I've really encountered this in my life, it's not very professional, so I'm sorry, but uh, I, I have family members who sold cars. I've worked around dealerships. I know the car buying process really well. People want me to buy cars for them. So I would always ask people, uh, well, what are you looking for? And they always say, oh, I want something that gets good gas mileage. Uh, I want something that's reliable. And I want something that's, you know, like safe in the snow. Cause I live in this hellscape where it's like snow and icy for half the year. And the thing is you'll show them what they say they want and they do not want it at all. You're like, okay, you, you want this, you know, un, like rather unexciting, like you know, sedan. And I'm like, well, what, what about like the BMW three series Are though, you know, are those like cheaper to own over the long haul? And you're like, absolutely not. And they're like, oh, okay. And, and you'll learn, oh, but my neighbor just bought one. And I think it's really cool. Yeah. So this, this is the hell of trying to get consumer feedback. Um, it's, it's hard, you know, like logos, branding or whatever. You'll just show someone a logo for like a, a new investment company and they'll be like, it should be a dollar sign with an arrow pointed up. And you're like, well, that's a little on the nose. Like, did, did you notice that like no company you do business with has something like that? Did you n notice that like no company is named like growing everyday investments or whatever? Like, you know, none of the big companies, they have names like Fidelity or whatever, you know, like, wow, that inspires trust. But it isn't like just telling the thing. But anyway, people get super literal because those are the right answers. Right. Investments growing every day is the right thing to name the company. A dollar sign with an arrow pointing up is the right logo. So what I've found when you need to get this feedback to understand people is you have to take right out of the equation. You have to bury it so that they don't know the right answer. So if you're, you know, if you're a, a money manager and you're, you're trying to understand, you know, the people you work with don't ask them what they want. Uh, they'll give you right answers. Um, I, uh, well, a lot of times I'll prepare, uh, different surveys that give people like a frustratingly low amount of detail. Like, uh, say I'm going to like, uh, test an email. I won't say, Hey, is this email good? I won't say, Hey, do you like this subject line? Uh, cause then that, that idea of like, I want to give the right answer starts creeping in instead i'll take a guess and i'll make five subject lines uh with the same body and then i'll send those to different people and then i'll just ask them questions that have nothing to do with the email itself like how much do you trust this organization uh how friendly does this organization seem uh does it seem like they would get back to you in a timely way like do you how how likely are you to want to invest with this person so now I've hidden what's right. They don't, they don't even know what they're evaluating and they'll, they'll just say, Oh, I thought this one was like mildly trustworthy or, and usually one comes back and they're like, we thought this person was really trustworthy. And you're like, got it. That's the line in the copy I want to go with. But, uh, people, this weird thing comes on, uh, happens when feedback becomes conscious and people start, I think, giving themselves credit for being like eminently way more reasonable than we are. And, uh, the, the truth is, uh, you know, we're all just kind of like scrapping, getting through life, uh, a lot of gut feeling and reactions and, and, and obeying the systems that have kept us alive for, you know, 300,000 years. 
Um, so if you respect those systems, things will go so much better for you. Yeah, I like that. Trying trying to take social desirability out of it, being very aware. You know, it's like we we think our brains are like a communications department, right? Where we're just sort of literally spouting in facts, but they're really a PR department, right? And so we said, hey, I want you know, I want a I want a sensible I want a sensible car that gets good mileage and is it handles well and stuff. It's like, no, you want to you want a sexy car, you want a cool you want a cool car. And then you want to back into some sensible reasons why you needed to buy that that BMW 5 Series or whatever. I, I elevated it from a 3 to a 5. I wonder. <laughs> right. Well, you got a growing family. Um, <laughs> you're, you're 100% right. Um, well, I, I find so much of sales and marketing is about uh, reducing the client's cognitive dissonance. Mm. Uh, so... The person who says, uh, I want the reliable car, uh, what they're really trying to do is, uh, you know, the, <laughs> reduce the, the discomfort of really knowing themselves. Right. Uh, we all, we all have things we'd be wildly embarrassed if people knew about us. Right. And we don't want to launch into those things publicly. Uh, so if I, uh, say, oh, I, I'm pretty vain, <laughs> You know, like I, I want a car nicer than my neighbor. That makes me feel bad. Right. If I can back into it, like you're saying of like, well, it needs to be reliable. And yeah, you know, like the, the BMW was rated, you know, highly by consumer reports or whatever. Now I can kind of be like, well, my cognitive dissonance and say, uh, uh, I'm still the type of person I want to, to perceive myself as yeah. and have the car I want. Now, it's an important lesson, right? Like the customer's not always right. And look for that emotional undercurrent that sort of undergirds whatever the stated facts are. So uh, when we were talking before I hit record, you said something that I just love. I was like telling you a bit, a bit about my audience. And you said, look, guys like me, our job is trying to get your clients not to say, right? And so I think it's interesting to kind of know your enemy is too dramatic here, but like, it's interesting to sort of like take, take a look under the hood and, you know, a lot of the same tendencies, you know, your book talks about things like, you know, loss aversion, some cost, tribalism that we're all familiar with in the investment world from, you know, a herding into a, a crowded trade perspective or, you know, on the loss aversion front, the advisors who listen to my show get a lot more calls when the market is down then they get a lot of uh, then they get fruit baskets when the market is up right so how like what what does the average lay person need to know about people like you uh, to be to to move through the the world in an informed way absolutely uh you know people listening couldn't say that i about threw my back out nodding while you were uh going through all that um, I had this epiphany when I was really young. Uh, I loved, we would get the Sunday paper and I would love looking at the ads. And, uh, cause I, I was a kid and there was this, uh, sense of like, oh my gosh, that would be amazing if I had this thing. You're like, look how happy that kid is in the ad. Um, this one still cracks me up. Look, look at an ad for an above ground pool anytime and you will see like the shortest, smallest bunch of family in that pool, like having the time of their lives. But we've all had that pool. Like, you know, you step into that pool and it goes about like mid shin and you're like, well, okay, now what? But go back and look at the ad and the, they're throwing a beach ball in an above ground pool, you know, like in a backyard. And it's, a, it's amazing. And so as a kid and I was going through this and I felt terrible. Uh, because I didn't have any money. My family was poor. And I thought, how, how am I ever going to be happy? And I had this epiphany that like, I was up against people with college degrees that, uh, the, you know, the, the fortune 100, you know, company whose ad I was looking at has a team of people who are designed to take my money. And that stuck with me ever since. So yes, uh, loss aversion, 
you you mentioned, uh, I think that is the one I see most. It's such a primal thing. And and by the way, I'm, I don't want to set myself up as as better than anyone else. It it totally works with me. You were talking about uh, you know uh, advisors, and every time our, ours comes to the house twice a year, I try. I deliberately try to talk to him as little as I can because uh, I think I will only mess it up. Yeah. But twi- twice a year, he insists on coming to the house because he's a great guy. And uh, so he'll open the, you know, the computer with the fancy screen where like I can't see the stuff I'm not supposed to see. And he'll walk me through the numbers and like the bad years. I'm like, great. Like we're we're buying golden cigarettes. Like I'm taking everything out and I'm buying golden cigarettes. That's, that's what I want to do. And the good years, I'm like, I should quit my job. Like, this is amazing. Like if I can make this much without doing anything, why don't I just do that all the time? Right. So my instinct is exactly opposite of what it should be. Right. But it's this thing of loss aversion, like you're talking about. And, and I know how it works and it still works on me. Uh, I was looking at some shoes the other day and they were like, oh, like four pairs left. And I was like, oh, in my size, like I've got to act on this. And then I was like, oh, uh, it's happening, <laughs> you know, uh, and I didn't uh, another day. I might have, but I think the, you know, the key for what, a, what a lot of your listeners uh, would be interested in um, if it, if this stuff can work against your clients, it can also work for your clients. If I'm running a, a marketing firm of a very large company and I have, you know, a sophisticated uh, team, you know, who are posting things online and who, uh, uh, you know, I have a budget of millions to take even more millions from the general public. Um, I'm relying on these things. Uh, you know, if for, for the advisors out there, your clients do not have a level playing field. Every day they are stepping into a world that is trying to separate them from their money. Um, so I think one of the, the roles of, uh, you know, a great advisor or, or even just someone who wants to save and invest is to use that psychology, uh, in support of the investor. Uh, you know, bef- before we were rolling, we also had this thing where I, I was talking about marketing and I thought, you know, getting the client in is only half the battle. Uh, then, you know, when that, my advisor comes to my house, uh, you know, periodically, Am I going to write another check? And I, am I going to put more in? Am I going to, you know, be, betray my natural instincts and, uh, you know, and, and all the the people out there who are trying to push my psychological buttons to make me spend? Um, and am I going to invest for my future? And uh, so that is that is the thing everyone is up against. Uh, there, there's no immunity from it. It's hardwired into us. The best chance we have is we can use the same tactics, uh, you know, to a positive end. And you can just be aware that like, you're not rational. I, I feel like that, you know, I, I think of all like the, uh, the biases I have. And sometimes I think I can confront them. And I think that's actually setting me up for greater failure. What I really need to do is respect them. Yeah. So I talk about... You know, I've talked about, I can't remember if I said it on the podcast or not, but there's this there's this idea in martial arts of the circular theory of self-defense, right? Where if someone throws a punch at you, rather than absorbing the full brunt of that that punch, you kind of roll with it and and use their exertion against them, right? You know, use use that momentum against them to kind of throw them. And that's the way I think about behavioral science at its best like there's there's all these examples right if you look at you know perhaps the most powerful uh behavioral finance intervention of all time was the save more tomorrow program where they use the auto withdrawal and auto escalation of funds to get tens of billions in 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 excess retirement funds by basically using our laziness and our status quo proneness uh to our benefit yeah. Are, are there practical examples of that you can think of from from your world where where people could take this knowledge and kind of be be better informed consumers of of ads as a result of this? Absolutely. Um, well, you know what what you were just talking about is, is a great thing because it it kind of recognizes well if 
if psychology and instinct are the problem, like let's just totally take them out of the situation altogether. And that, that is a thing that, that we can do. Uh, you know, I, I, the story I started with, uh, I, I don't look at ads. I avoid ads like the plague. Um, and you know, that, that could be a, a, a thing that all of us do. You, you can, uh, avoid all ads. I mean, they're on our bananas for crying out loud, but, uh, you're going to see some ads, but you can ser- seriously reduce the amount of exposure you have. Or, um, you know, all, all of these things that work against us, as I've said, can work uh, for us. Um, so uh, he- here's an example that uh, I'm, I'm particularly fond of because it works so well. Early in my career, uh, we would sell people and we'd invite them to this executive breakfast. And I think this might be relatable for a lot of your listeners. Like, hey, we're going to come to like a nice hotel. We're going to give you some like, uh, you know overpriced poached eggs and uh you know we're gonna get a bunch of like uh uh ritzy people in and we're gonna like pitch them on what we do for two two and a half hours and then we're gonna let them go about their day uh we wanted to make the executive breakfast free initially because we don't want to put in a bar you know to to anyone coming the problem was most people wouldn't come and then a lot of the people who signed up would be like oh i'm real busy this morning i'm not going to be able to make it and we, we weren't getting folks out. So I changed the psychology of it. Um, and here I'm going to use loss aversion. You loss aversion doesn't have to be real, by the way, you, you can just create it. You can just create a sense of loss. Like the movie castaway got you to cry when a volleyball died, you know, <laughs> this, this is our psychology. You can just create a sense of loss. So, um, I got, uh, like heavy bond paper that was, you know, very nice. Like you could see the pulp, you know, that's, that's somehow nicer. And, uh, we would send out these invitations like folded and sealed in wax, like, Hey, and inside the invitation, there were these vouchers, uh, for free admission to our regularly $75, uh, you know, executive breakfast. And we, we calculated the, the amount, you know, just like, oh yeah, this is, you know, roughly what it costs us or whatever. And like, okay, so here's free admission to our $75 executive breakfast. And it was the weirdest thing. Now they had the tickets in their hand and they didn't want to lose them. So people start, uh, you know, instead of writing us and being like, oh, it's not a good time or I'm really busy that morning. They're like, I'm busy, but could I send my assistant for me or. I'm busy, but could I send my friend in my place? Could, you know, they didn't want to lose this thing we created. So, you know, if, if loss aversion all the time, it, you know, that thing that's making me say, uh, that wants me to order those shoes because there's only four left in my size. I, I often wonder, you know, uh, uh, advisors, you know, did things like here's, here's where you should track and here's where you're losing. If it wouldn't radically change our behavior. Yeah. Because I don't want to lose progress. Yeah. I don't want to lose progress even more than I want to gain progress, right? There's there's a great, my wife's family has an amazing story about this. I freaking love this because it, it's uh, my wife's grandma, Bobby, lived to be 103. And uh, the timer on her oven broke. And so she called the repair guy. And the repair guy um, said, yeah, that'll be $65. And who knows how much $65 was for this, you know, 103 year old woman. It's probably, you know, thousand dollars an hour or something. And she said she thought about getting it fixed. And then she pictured herself holding a, a $5 egg timer and $60 in her other hand. And that felt way better to her than getting it fixed. So she flipped the loss aversion at first, uh, you know, it's like, oh, this thing I've bought in sunk costs, you know, I have bought this oven and it doesn't even work. And now I've got to pay this other 65 just to keep it working. But through that kind of imagery, she didn't suddenly didn't want to lose that $60 she could imagine herself holding. And I think that's like one of the most fascinating things I've ever heard. Yeah. So there's so much great psychology in these stories, right? Like loss aversions prominently on display. But also the idea of salience, you know, this is something that I just don't think we understand enough or or use enough in the business is that making something real imbues it with an emotional power and, and sort of an emotional valence that leads us to make different decisions, right? Like imagining $60 in her hand, that $60 becomes real. The egg timer and the $60, the butcher paper, the whatever, 
the the cardstock you know thing with with a 75 imputed 75 dollar imputed value like that feels like a loss of 75 dollars because it's real and you can hold it in your hand and suddenly i'm looking for ways to offload this to someone who who can come instead of just flaking on the evite or whatever so anytime we can make these things real i think there's real power in that there's a, there's a couple of concepts in the book that i think translate well to the world of investing right and one of them is that we often fail to respect reality what do you what do you mean when you say we fail to respect reality yeah well <laughs> so i was a kid and i uh you know grew up the the very tail end of a big unathletic family and at the end of a dirt road and we just didn't play sports and so the first time i ever played sports uh um, like everyone laughed at me and I just knew that I didn't like that feeling. Right. Uh, but I grew up in an era where, uh, PE physical education was a little more than like rolling out a cart of basketballs. And so I had to learn to like pass and rebound and whatever. And then, but I would never take the shot because people laugh at you. Then one day, uh, I was playing a game and it was clear. My teammate was like of the same school I was and like, someone just had to take a shot and I took a shot and I made it and I took a shot and I made it. And, uh, from this little thing, I concluded that I was an amazing basketball player, you know? And then this is like the, uh, the problem of like too small of a sample size. Right. So, uh, then, uh, I, I, parlay that success into some more moderate success. And then one day I show up in a gym and there's a guy there who's like plays on it, like for a D one school. And I'm like, well, time to show him who the real talent is. And this guy wrecked me like without passion or interest. Like he was checking his watch in the middle of the game, you know, like, and he destroyed me. And it was always this lesson to me of like, oh gosh, like how, how quickly we can completely untether ourselves from facts and reality. So this, this is a, a problem I, I see when people are, are executing on a strategy and in the investment world, you have this issue of like, um, you know, I'll, I'll do it for example, a real life. Uh, I open an account for my daughter, uh, cause I want to show her that like, uh, investing is great and it's fun. The reality is investing is sometimes great and fun, <laughs> you know, like it's, it's always great. It's, uh, sometimes fun. And, uh, so I would show her when things were going up and I opened this account in like, uh, you know, the middle of the pandemic when like, we're all just getting checks and like things are going nuts and you know, the market's on this unprecedented tear. And I'm like, look, Michaela, you made, you know, like $1,400, you know, in the last year, just not doing anything. And, and to her, she's very young. That's like a, an incredible amount. Uh, but what I was doing was that same thing of, of, you know, instilling in her this, this not respect for reality of like, the reality isn't that like she was going to, I think she made like 28% on her investment that year or something. And there are years like that, right? Uh, the next year we dipped way below principle. Uh, the reality is you average, you know, like a a 9% return or something. Uh, but it's never 9%. You know, the, the reality is it's up, it's down. And when we don't respect that reality, we start making bad decisions. Um, so I, I think to the extent that we can get people to understand reality and to accept it, uh, we get better results. So, you know, here's, so first of all, I mean, I'm, I'm in violent agreement with you, but you know, I'm going to, draw on your behavioral chops here because if you look at something like the the up 28 percent year well or even the down big year yeah. tell someone you know telling someone that stocks you know average nine or ten percent a year when they're up 28 percent you you can tell them that but it doesn't sink in like the euphoria of the up 28 percent the plus 1400 bucks for for a young kid is like yeah yeah that's that's sort of that's sort of a a, a knife to a gunfight right like the the facts of <laughs> the facts of reality are the knife and the, the the emotion is the gun whether it's a good or a bad you know I think about I think about something like death right like we all 
we all kind of know we're going to die, right? Like we, yeah, like you, you ask anyone like, hey, are you going to live forever? Like, no, I, I'll die. But like, we don't know, no, until you get that, that bad diagnosis. So like how, you know, from a behavioral perspective, when this emotional sort of, you know, this emotional distortion field is so pronounced. How can we get people to accept reality in the face of this emotional distortion field? Yeah. One of the things, uh, by the way, I, I, I don't know. And I, <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of good answers. Uh, I think I have tiny bits of the answer, but like the, the thing about people is, uh, you know, we're, we're so not understood. I, I mean, in psychology, we're just practically past the leeches stage. Uh, so there's so much to learn, but, uh, yeah. So one of the things that I think we can do is focus on input measures instead of output measures and, and sort of make that the reality. Uh, so I was making a bad mistake and saying, Hey, look how much you grew and, and didn't earn. I would be like, Hey, look, you put into this every, you know, every month. Good for you. Like yeah. that's what we should celebrate. Uh, I once heard this amazing post-game interview with uh, Ray Allen and the reporter was like, Hey, why weren't you shooting the ball well tonight? And he's like, I shot the ball well tonight. And the reporter was like, uh, your stat line was, you know, like uh, three of 17 or something. And he's like, no, I shot the ball. Well, just didn't go in the hoop. And they're like, can you elaborate? And he's like, yeah, I was in system. I was square to the basket. My feet were set. Like I took good shots. I was open. Ball didn't go in the basket. And I was so impressed mm -hmm. by how well this guy, you know, understood what this was all about. I, I recently read about a bunch of studies. Um, th this is embarrassing. I contemplated making a vision board, uh, you know, uh, and uh, I, I just felt like so lost in my life. I was like, well, maybe if, you know, I, I get out some poster paper and I glue a Porsche 911 on there, maybe that's like what, what will do this. And then I got curious. I was like, do these even work? breakdown that's uh yeah, that's, yeah, yeah oh yeah oh for sure yeah we we will end up like the pg version of the breakdown like this is like the hallmark one um but yeah i i was in crisis full-on crisis and uh so i in reading about this i learned that not only do they not work which you shouldn't shock anyone they're actually detrimental um there were these researchers uh uh one was at UCLA, one was at another California university. I can't, I can't remember which right now, but they did this with sports. They did it with like grades. They did it with a bunch of things. I'll, I'll do the grade one. Cause I think it was the first, they divided students into three groups. One was a control one group. They asked them to spend like 10, 15, 20 minutes every day, visualizing, getting a great grade in the class. The other group, they asked them to spend 10, 15, 20 minutes every day. Uh, visualizing the methods they would use to get the good grade in the class. Uh, the control group, you know, uh, was in the middle when it was all said and done. The group that visualized, visualized the end performed worse and the group that visualized process-oriented things performed best. What they found was the group that visualized doing well actually had a false sense of already attaining what they wanted. So it can actually be, be detrimental. So, so part of, you know, what we need to do to respect reality is to get a sense for what we control and don't control. I, I see so much of this, you know, on LinkedIn and everywhere of like, you make your own luck and yada, yada, yada. And it's like, well, I understand why it's convenient and really helpful to believe that. But the truth is we're all subject, you know, like we advisors don't make the market. Uh, we're all subject to these things that we don't entirely control. Uh, that's why when we put the focus back where the locus of control is, uh, it's so much better for people and, it, and it, this respect for reality comes more naturally. I, I love the, I love the Ray Allen example you gave, you know, I even, um, I grew up and my dad, my dad had a maniacal focus on paying off our house when I was a kid. So, you know, I grew up, uh, in a strict religious household and, you know, we couldn't swear and everything, which you, you know, and probably pretty standard for kids. But the word debt was a four letter word. I mean, my dad would literally not let us say the word debt, just like it was any other four, four letter word. And he had this 
poster board up in his in his closet that was like however much he owed a, a, a picture of a house like with however much he owed on the house broken up into whatever the dollar segment was and each time he paid down a bit of the house he would color it in so i inherited this weird habit from my dad so every you know every year when i'm setting my new year's resolutions i used to put like the place i wanted to get right like i want to have this much in the bank i want you know this goal at the gym this goal with family or whatever and now i put the steps that it takes to get there right so instead of i want to bench press whatever now it's like i want to bench press this this week that this week this you know 5 pounds more the next week on and on from there and the process investing so weird because you can do the right thing and get a bad result or you can do the absolute stupid thing and have a uh, have a fantastic result i'm really looking forward to watching the dumb money uh you know maybe that's that's coming out soon because you know i, I wrote in one of my books that you can you can um you know you can be right and still be a moron right like you can get the right result and, and still be bad so a big part of honoring reality and respecting reality is is respecting process so the last one that, that i want to ask about we'll let people buy the book and, and figure out the rest of the chapters but you know maintaining a long-term focus is one of the one of the absolute hallmarks of good investing and, and you have a chapter on accepting the long haul. Talk to us uh, about what you mean there. Absolutely. So, you know, I, I mentioned the kind of the mental stage of which this book was born out of. Um, and, and one of the problems I saw in, in every organization I worked with, because it's a human problem, is we would mess up marketing execution because we couldn't accept the long haul. Mm. Things play out, tend to play out like they should over time. They don't over a short period of time. Um, I heard this story once about a statistics professor who would divide classes into like a bunch of groups and half the groups, he'd have them flip a coin every time and record their results on the board. The other half, he would tell them just to manufacture results on the board mm -hmm. and he would leave the room and then he would come back in and to the amazement of all the students, he would then point to every group that actually flipped the coin. Right. And he'd get it right a hundred percent of the time. And, you know, people would be like, how, how did you know? And it's because in a group that's actually flipping the coin every time you will see, uh, runs six, seven, eight long of heads. But we, in, in our heads, we know it's 50, 50. Yeah. And so we don't dare do a run of more than like two or three. Two or three. Yeah. And, you know, and then we'll, we'll do like a two or three and then we'll balance it out because we're trying to impose rationality on the numbers, but the numbers are only rational over a very, very, very long data set. Mm -hmm. Um, so you take this, this thing that we all have of trying to impose rationality on, on the numbers and you might launch a new marketing campaign and you'll say like, oh, it's not working. We better change it. Well, now we've changed it. And the last month of data we had is no good anyway, because now we've changed it and, and it's not performing like we thought we would again. So we're going to change it. And then it performs like we think it should, but it's not because it's actually working. It's just because we're in a weird run of the numbers. So we lock in, this is how it works. And then when it doesn't work like that in the future, we're at a loss and we don't know what to do. And, um, you know, this, this is the way people are, are wired. Uh, I think, you know, talk, talking about, uh, advisors and investors, people who, who listen to this podcast and who, who want to uh, grow their own money or help other people grow their own money. Um, you have to really focus on this long haul. Uh, you have to get people to understand that in any, if you look at too small of a sample size, it can corrupt, you know, what, what conclusions you'll draw. Um, you have to get people to accept the bigger sample size. Uh, that story I told with my daughter, that was my failing in that story, right? I, uh, took the first year of her investing when I knew the market was performing irregularly. Mm -hmm. I was like, look how, well, look what can happen. And my sample size was too small. Uh, as an example of, it, you know, and it's fun when that's up, 
But if the risk is in a down year, then I think, oh, uh, this investment strategy is no good. Right. Uh, I have to thank you because if it wasn't for your LinkedIn posts, I think I would have like moved a bunch of money out of accounts foolishly in like down years. Uh, but so what, one of the ways that I think, you know, any of us can combat this, uh, period of, or this tendency to not want to accept the long haul, um, before you have any skin in any particular game, before you make an investment, uh, when you're completely dispassionate about it, when you're not bleeding yet, think what would success look like? Like, what do I want to see? And what kind of reasonable benchmarks do I need to know if I'm getting the success I want? Because if, you know, if, if you were asking me to invest in a business, uh, I don't think I would tell you, well, I want to see profitability in four weeks. Um, it's just crazy. Like, I know it's crazy when I'm dispassionate. I'd say like, well, these are the things we want to see at a year. These are the things we want to see at two years. And around four or five years, I'll know if it worked. Uh, so make those decisions when you are dispassionate, say, these are the times I'm going to check in or, you know, encourage your clients to do that. Like, Hey, let's do regular check-ins. Uh, I, I recently was trying to lose a bunch of weight and I found weighing myself every day was really hard because there are days where you stick to the diet and you weigh more. Right. If you weigh yourself once a week, you will see that mostly you just lose weight, but the day to day is rough. So, uh, one thing I talk about in the book, uh, for marketing departments, but for anyone who's trying to see a result from data, like figure out what sample size you need ahead of time, and then don't cheat and look at the data before that time comes, because you're likely to impose your own rationality on the data. If you do. Yeah. Incredible. I love that. I love that about the, the flipping coins. I love that. I love that anecdote. Uh, Daniel Staker, the book is to market how to give a damn and take things to the next level. Uh, look, I'm not happy that you had a breakdown, but it seems like it birthed, it seems like it birthed something really meaningful and, and something beautiful. And it's, it's a great read. Uh, if people want to learn more about you, if they want to read the book, where can, where can folks find you? Yeah. Uh, the book is on Amazon, Audible, iTunes, all the good places, uh, and they can find me at danielstaker.com or they can find my uh, uh, business work at blackflagventure.com. Hey, Daniel, thanks so much for coming by. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to Standard Deviations. If you can't wait till next week for more behavioral finance insights, visit www.orion.com. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion and its affiliates, subsidiaries, and employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.